I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. And this morning we will be looking at verses 1 through 10. Galatians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 10. I'll begin reading for us in chapter 2, verse 1. This is God's Word. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank You and praise You for the hope that we have in the gospel, and we thank You for how that gospel has been revealed to us and preserved for us in Your Word. As we turn to Your Word now, Lord, we pray that You would lead and guide us by Your Spirit. We pray, Father, that we would interpret it and understand it accurately. And, Father, we pray that you would apply it to our hearts and lives so that we would be changed and transformed for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, currently, as most of you know, we are in a series in the book of Galatians. And we have learned that Paul founded the church in Galatia. And, but shortly after his departure, there were false teachers who followed behind the Apostle Paul, and they sought to subvert Paul's ministry in these churches. They sought to subvert the work that he had done there by questioning Paul's authority and then, by extension, questioning Paul's gospel. And so the Apostle Paul opens this letter by seeking to establish his authority as an apostle, to establish a basis upon which the churches in Galatia should listen to him, should listen to his teaching, should accept his gospel. And so in chapters 1 and 2, this is really the focus of Paul's teaching. He's seeking to establish his apostolic authority. In chapter 1, verse 1, we saw that Paul opens the letter with these words, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then if you go down a little bit further in chapter 1 in verses 11 and 12, Paul returns to this idea again where there he writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. 
For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, last week we saw that as as Paul is seeking to establish his apostolic authority here, last week we saw that the false teachers were using a very classic tactic to undermine Paul's apostolic authority. And the tactic was to divide and conquer, to divide and conquer. They were arguing that there was a division, there was a rift between Paul the apostle and the apostles in Jerusalem. And so they were arguing that the real authority resided in Jerusalem and that the real authority resided with the Jerusalem apostles and that they represented the Jerusalem apostles and their gospel represented the Jerusalem apostles. On the other hand, Paul, he had gone rogue. He was preaching a different gospel than the apostles in Jerusalem. And so the Galatian churches should not accept Paul's authority, nor should they accept his gospel. Now this is actually, you might think, well, well, this is kind of interesting in terms of, you know, historical events or that sort of thing. That happened a long time ago. What does that have to do with us today? Well, actually, it's particularly relevant to our own day. Because there are some folks, even today, who seek to undermine the authority of Scripture by arguing that the biblical authors contradict one another. In other words, they attempt to use the same tactic, to divide and to conquer. In particular, some will suggest that Paul's teachings are not consistent with Jesus' teachings, or the, the Apostle Paul contradicts the Apostle James, and so forth. But understand, my friends, this is not a new tactic. False teachers were seeking to employ this tactic in the first century, and Paul and the other apostles addressed it then. And what they had to say then is still relevant for today. Last week we saw that Paul described his relationship with the apostles as one of independence and one of solidarity. And this week, Paul continues that theme, but he particularly stresses his solidarity with the apostles in Jerusalem. You see there in verses 1 and 2 of our passage in chapter 2, we read these words, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, this is actually a continuation of Paul's narrative from what we saw last week in the latter part of chapter 1, where Paul described his Christian conversion, how the Lord Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and he was miraculously and radically converted and trusted in Christ. And then Paul told us that he spent some time in Arabia and Damascus. And then it was after three years that he had been converted that he went to Jerusalem But when he went to Jerusalem that time, he only saw Peter and James as it related to the apostles, and he only saw them for a short time. And then he went to Syria and Cilicia, and now he picks up that narrative. So he's telling us his story, uh, the years after his conversion and his experience. And he says now that 14 years after his conversion, he went to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of the Christian church at this time. And when he went to Jerusalem, he took two people with him, two of his missionary companions, Barnabas and Titus. And notice there that he says that when he arrived in Jerusalem and he met the Jerusalem apostles, in verse 2 he says that he set before them 
the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. Now, this is interesting because essentially what Paul is saying here is that he knew that if he and the apostles in Jerusalem were to enjoy unity, then that unity must be rooted and grounded in the gospel. And so Paul says, when I went to Jerusalem and I met the Jerusalem apostles, I put my gospel on the table. I was up front. I was honest. I discussed it with them. I said to them, this is the gospel that I received from Jesus. This is the gospel that I am preaching to the Gentiles. And right here, immediately we see an important truth. We see from the example of the Apostle Paul that all Christian unity must be rooted in a common understanding of the gospel. Without it, without a common understanding of the gospel, there cannot be real, genuine Christian unity. Of course, some today would object to that claim. They would object to an emphasis on Christian truth and doctrine. Some might say, well, I believe I can experience God without truth. I believe I can experience God without doctrine because I sense Him, I feel Him. And I believe that a relationship with God is based more upon feeling and intuition than it is based upon dogma. Well, my friends, understand that the Bible teaches us that to know God, yes, we must possess more than just right doctrine and truth. You must also have faith. But without truth, without right doctrine, without a right understanding of the gospel, you will not know what or who to put your faith in. And therefore, without truth, you cannot truly know or experience a relationship with God. I believe that's what Paul is getting at in verse 2 when he says there that he, he set before them the gospel that he proclaimed among the Gentiles. Look there in verse 2. In order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, now when Paul says that, I don't think Paul is saying that he lacked confidence in his gospel so that he set his gospel before them because he was fearful that maybe he had gotten it wrong and he needed their affirmation. I think if you read uh, chapter 2 and chapter 1, the larger context of what's taking place here, that's obviously not the case. Rather, what Paul is saying here is that he did not want the false teachers, the Judaizers, through their false teaching and through their false gospel to undermine the good work that he had done in Galatia. Because he knew that if the Galatians lost the gospel... If they embraced the false teaching of the Judaizers and they lost the gospel, then they would lose God. There is no true knowledge. There is no true relationship with God apart from the gospel. And that's why Paul is concerned. That all his work, all his labor in Galatia would have been for nothing if they forsake the gospel. Because without the gospel, they cannot know God. That's one of the reasons why this passage is so very important. So what came of Paul's visit to Jerusalem and his visit with the Jerusalem apostles? That's what we want to consider this morning. And what we'll see in our text is that from Paul's visit to Jerusalem, Paul was reassured that he and the rest of the apostles shared pastoral, doctrinal, and missional unity in the gospel. I'll say that again. 
from Paul's visit to Jerusalem, he was reassured that he and the apostles shared pastoral, doctrinal, and missional unity in the gospel. First of all, in our text, we see that they shared pastoral unity. Look there in verses 3 through 5, we read these words. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now one of the things that's important for us to see here in these verses is that getting the gospel right is important because getting the gospel right affects people. It affects real people. And Paul was a pastor. Paul loved people. And it was one of the reasons why he was so concerned about the truth and the integrity of the gospel. Think about this. There's these two men who are traveling with the Apostle Paul. The two men are Barnabas and Titus. Now we know that Barnabas was a Jew. He was well known by the apostles and he was very active in the ministry at the church in Jerusalem. And then there was Titus. Titus was a Gentile. Paul refers to him here as a Greek. He was converted. He came to faith in Christ. And he became a co-worker, a a missionary companion with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. Later on, in fact, Paul would write a letter to Titus, giving Titus instructions on how he was to um, lead and oversee the churches in Crete and appoint leaders in those churches. The letter is actually entitled Titus, and you can find it in the New Testament. Well, here we see that Paul is going to Jerusalem. He takes these two men with him, Barnabas and Titus. And he arrives in Jerusalem. And Paul meets with the apostles in Jerusalem. And and, and now consider the scene here. You have Paul, who is a Jew. You have Barnabas, who is a Jew. You have the Jerusalem apostles, who are all Jews. And all of these men have been circumcised. They were Jews They were circumcised when they were young, and circumcision was critical in terms of the Jewish faith in in the sense that it marked, it, it, it identified who the people of God were. And along with circumcision came the Jewish calendar and customs and festivals and traditions and all of these things. The Jerusalem apostles, as well as Paul and Barnabas, they would have been aware of all of these things and grown up observing these Jewish customs and grown up in Jewish culture. And then you have Titus, who's not a Jew, who's a Gentile, but is trusted in Christ, who's not circumcised. And this is a momentous moment in Christian history. Because you can imagine in that setting where where they're in the city of Jerusalem, they're, they're immersed in Jewish culture. Everyone who's a leader there almost is Jewish. You can imagine that there would be this almost overwhelming sense of pressure that Titus, too, needed to be circumcised. Titus here is representing Paul and his ministry. He's representing Paul's gospel. He's representing the Gentile church. And so what will happen? Will the apostles in Jerusalem discount Titus's conversion? Will they insist that Titus be circumcised? 
Will they require Titus to become a Jew in order to be a disciple of Jesus? Will they require that he adopt the Jewish calendar and customs and culture and tradition and diet? Or will they not? This was a big deal. And Paul says there in chapter 2 verse 4 that there were some who were false brothers that were insisting that Titus needed to be circumcised. Now, what did these false brothers believe? Well, these false brothers, I think what they believed is represented well in Acts chapter 15 verse 1 where Luke describes a group of folks from Judea who believed this. In Acts chapter 15 verse 1 we read, But some men came from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what the false brothers believed. That's what the false brothers were promoting. That Titus really could not be saved unless he was circumcised, unless he became a Jew. And then Paul goes on to say what the real issue is. Look there in verse 4. They had slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us in to slavery. In other words, the false brothers were saying to Titus, and by extension to all the other Gentile converts, Trusting in Jesus is not enough. And then the practical consequence was to enslave Titus and all the other Gentile Christians and churches to observing the Jewish law and customs and traditions and regulations and diets and then saying, and listen, if you get it all right, then maybe you will be right before God. If you, if you trust in Jesus based on what Jesus has done for you and then based on what you do by observing these things, perhaps it will be enough. Perhaps you will be saved. Of course, folks do this today as well, don't they? When folks say, yes, of course you must believe in Jesus and Jesus is the way of salvation and you must be baptized in order to be saved. Or, yes, you must believe in Jesus and trust in Him for your salvation, and you must speak in tongues in order to be saved. Or, yes, you must believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead. That is very important. But you also must become a member of this particular church, and then you will be saved. Or you must take communion, or you must attend confession, or you must pray the rosary, or whatever it might be, and then you will be saved. And do you see that whether we get the gospel right or wrong deeply affects real people? Affects how they view their relationship with God. Affects their security in Christ. Affects their assurance of salvation. Affects their sense of whether they know God and are accepted by God. Affects whether they are, in fact, accepted by God. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he writes these words on this point, quote, 
Man's reason has the law for its object. Thus thinking with itself, this have I done and this have I not done. So Luther is saying that's our natural disposition when we relate to God. Think, okay, I've done this, I haven't done this, I've done this, I haven't done this. Weigh it out. Think, okay, will he accept me? He goes on to write, but faith being in her own proper office, has no other object but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, delivered to death for the sins of the whole world. It says not, what have I done? What have I offended? What have I deserved? But what has Christ done? What has He deserved? Here the truth of the gospel answers you. He has redeemed you from your sin, from the devil, and from eternal death. Faith, therefore, acknowledges that in this one person, Jesus Christ, it has forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He that turns his eyes from this object has no true faith but a fantasy and a vain opinion and turns his eyes from the promises to the law, which terrifies and drives to desperation, end of quote. And that's one of the reasons why we should care about the gospel. We don't want to leave people terrified and in desperation that they can't ever meet the standard. But we want them to know the freedom and joy that comes through the reality that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Why did Paul care about the truth of the gospel? Because whether we get the gospel right or wrong affects real people. He was concerned for Titus. He didn't want Titus to be enslaved to laws and regulations and rules that Titus could never live up to, nor could any of the other Jews. He didn't want the freedom and joy that Titus knew in the gospel to be robbed from him, to be stolen from him. But he wanted Titus to know a deeper experience and reality of that freedom and joy and to walk in the free forgiveness that is ours in Christ. And notice this, not only was Paul concerned for Titus, notice what he says in verse 5. He didn't yield to the false brothers in Jerusalem. Here's why. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I don't know that Paul even knew these people in Galatia when he was in Jerusalem. But Paul had in mind, when this thing was taking place in Jerusalem, between Titus and Barnabas and the Jerusalem apostles and that sort of thing, he had in mind, this has implications. Whether we get this right or not, whether we remain true for the gospel or not, this has implications for many other Christians to come in the future. And so he was intent on preserving the truth of the gospel for the sake of those who were to come. For the church in Galatia by extension for our church. And so, my friends, we also should, should care today about the truth and the integrity of the gospel for the sake of others. We should care about it for the sake of our community, for the sake of our city, for the sake of the nations, even as we send missionaries out from this church. We should care about it for the sake of our children and our grandchildren. Because we don't want them to be enslaved to the terrors and desperation of the law. We want them to know the joy and the freedom that comes through the free grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. So, Paul was reassured 
that he and the Jerusalem apostles shared pastoral unity, a, a concern for people and for their souls as it relates to the gospel. Secondly, he was reassured that he and the Jerusalem apostles shared doctrinal unity, doctrinal unity. Look there in verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Now, notice here in these verses how the Apostle Paul refers to the Jerusalem apostles. In verse 2, he refers to them as those who seemed influential. Then if you go down in verse 6, he refers to them as those who seemed influential. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. And then in verse 9, if you go down a little bit further in our passage, he refers to them as those who seemed to be pillars. Now, some have wondered if Paul here is being derogatory or dismissive towards the apostles in Jerusalem by saying they seem to be influential, they seem to be pillars. But I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. Rather, from the opening chapters of the book of Galatians and also Paul's other writings, it's apparent that Paul admired, he recognized, uh, he honored the other apostles and their apostolic authority. But remember what Paul is being accused of here. The false brothers are saying that Paul is not a real apostle. They, they are saying that we're coming from Jerusalem and we represent the true apostles, the true apostles who are in Jerusalem, and we present to you the true gospel that comes from them. And so I think what Paul is doing here is he's, he's making a distinction between himself and the apostles in Jerusalem just to, to indicate that he honors and respects and acknowledges the apostles in Jerusalem, but he does not worship them or idolize them. In other words, Paul is confident that he himself is an apostle and that he has received the gospel from Jesus. And he's confident that the apostles in Jerusalem are, in fact, apostles. And, and he acknowledges apostolic authority. But he also acknowledges that that authority that he possesses and the authority that the apostles in Jerusalem possess is only legitimate as long as it is consistent with the message of Jesus himself, the message that was given to them by Jesus. And we see this actually in chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, and Paul makes this bold statement there. Look there in verse 8. Paul says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And so what you see here is that in these verses, Paul, what's really striking about these verses is that Paul says, even if we preach to you a different gospel. Well, Paul was an apostle. And so we might ask, well, Paul, you're an apostle. How, how can you say, even if you preach a different gospel, let you be accursed? Because Paul is acknowledging that, yes, he possesses apostolic authority, but that apostolic authority gives him the authority to preach and proclaim and preserve the message that was given to him by Jesus, not to alter that message. And so if he preaches that gospel 
And then later he comes back and contradicts that gospel, the message that was given to him by Jesus. He says, don't listen. Only the message that was given to us by Jesus is worthy of your submission. And the same is true for the apostles in Jerusalem. They have apostolic authority. Apostolic authority to proclaim and preserve the message Jesus has given to them, not to alter it. In fact, this is interesting, next week we will see that Paul rebukes Peter, who is the chief of the apostles in Jerusalem, the leader of the apostles in Jerusalem. Why? Because momentarily, Peter was not walking consistent with the gospel. And Peter, by God's grace, he repented and he came back. And Peter acknowledged that Paul was right, but the standard again was not even Peter. It was the gospel. The gospel delivered to the apostles by Jesus himself. And it's so critical that we maintain this standard today. That we be absolutely committed to God's truth and his gospel revealed to us in Holy Scripture. Again, Martin Luther, I told you there's going to be some sermons where you're going to hear a lot of Luther quotes. This is one of them. Martin Luther says this, quote, The question here is not concerning the respect of persons, but there is a far weightier matter in hand, a divine matter concerning God and His Word, and whether this Word ought to be preferred before the apostleship or not. And Paul answers, so that the truth of the gospel may continue, so that the righteousness of faith may be kept pure and uncorrupt, let the apostleship go. Let an angel from heaven, let Peter, let Paul perish all together. You see what Luther's saying? Paul is indicating the word, the word of Christ, is superior even to the word of an apostle. His word is only authoritative as it is consistent with the word of Christ. And then Luther goes on to apply this principle to his own battle in his own day as he was, he was resisting the Roman Catholic Church and the false gospel that they were preaching. Luther writes, Wherefore, if the Pope will grant unto us that God alone by His grace through Christ does justify sinners, we will not only carry Him in our hand, but we will also kiss His feet. But since we cannot obtain this, we and God are against Him above measure. And will give no place, no, not one hair's breadth, to a thousand popes, not to the whole world. End of quote. So Luther is saying whether it's a pope, whether it's an apostle, it does not matter. What finally and ultimately is our standard is the gospel of Jesus Christ delivered to us through his Son. So, how did Paul handle this situation in Jerusalem? How did he respond when these false brothers were insisting that? that Titus be circumcised. Notice there in verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. And so what Paul is saying here is that even if the Jerusalem apostles had forsaken the gospel and had allied with the false brothers, which they did not, but even if they had, we would not have submitted to them we would not abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, Paul is saying here, is free. We receive the free grace of God's mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul is happy to proclaim it. He is happy to explain it. 
He is happy to defend it, but he will not alter it. Another quote from Martin Luther. He writes, quote, For the issue before us is grave and vital. It involves the death of the Son of God, who by the will and command of the Father became flesh, was crucified, and died for the sins of the world. If faith yields on this point, the death of the Son of God will be in vain. Then it is only a fable that Christ is the Savior of the world. Then God is a liar, for He has not lived up to His promises. Therefore, our stubbornness on this issue is pious and holy. For by it we are striving to preserve the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to keep the truth of the gospel. If we lose this, we lose God. If we lose this, we lose Christ, all the promises, faith, righteousness, and eternal life itself. End of quote. In other words, too much is at stake. When it comes to the fundamental truth of the gospel, we must not yield even for a moment. But notice this, and this is absolutely key, and this is one of the main points that Paul's making in this section. Neither did the Jerusalem apostles yield to the false brothers. Paul says here that the Jerusalem apostles did not require, nor did they request, Paul to yield to the false brothers. And why? Because the apostles in Jerusalem and Paul shared doctrinal unity when it came to the gospel. You see it there in chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says, in regard to the Jerusalem apostles, they added nothing to me. In other words, they added nothing to my gospel. I came to them and I said, here's Titus. He's a Gentile convert. He's believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again to save him from his sins. And the false brothers are saying, oh no, he's got to be circumcised as well. And the Jerusalem apostles say, no, nothing needs to be added. Titus has trusted in Christ. He is one of us. And that's the real issue, isn't it? What is the gospel? How are we saved? And the gospel declares that we are saved by Christ and His redemptive work plus nothing. They added nothing to me and to my gospel. I love the way Tim Keller puts this. He's a Presbyterian minister in New York City. He says, what do you need to become a Christian? Nothing. But then he goes on to say this, but very few people have nothing. All of us want to bring something. All of us want to bring something to prove ourselves, to justify ourselves, to put God in our debt and to say, God, you owe me. But the gospel says that we are saved by Christ and his redemptive work plus nothing. This truth is captured so well in a song that we sang last week entitled, Not In Me. No list of sins I have not done, no list of virtues I pursue, no list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you.
No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by Him, and He alone can give me rest. No separation of the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. But Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. Paul and the Jerusalem apostles shared doctrinal unity in this gospel that we are saved by Christ and Christ alone. Third, Paul was reassured that he and the Jerusalem apostles shared missional unity, missional unity. Look there in verses 7 through 10. Paul writes, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So this is a, quite a remarkable group here as we think about who's gathered there together in Jerusalem. In particular, we have here Peter, James, and John, and then you add Pete, uh, Paul to that group. And so you think about those four guys. They wrote most of the New Testament. And Paul says that they enjoyed unity with one another, that, that once the Jerusalem apostles, and in particular Peter, James, and John, once they recognized that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel by God himself, they extended to him the right hand of fellowship. And they acknowledged that just as Peter had been given the gospel and entrusted with the gospel to take it to the Jews, that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel to take the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, not only was there pastoral unity and doctrinal unity, there was missional unity. Paul and the apostles in Jerusalem partnered together and agreed that they would unite their efforts in their evangelistic and missionary uh, endeavor to take the gospel to those who had not heard it, both Jew and Gentile. And in many ways, this really brings us full circle in our passage. Because we began by seeing this morning in our text pastoral unity between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles. We saw Paul's burden to protect the freedom and joy of the gospel for the sake of others, for the sake of Titus and for the sake of the Galatian churches. And I know that there are some of us here this morning who have a real heart for other believers, who have a heart for discipling them in the faith, who have a heart for helping other believers grow in their understanding of the Scriptures and of the Gospel and helping them grow in their knowledge of God's grace and mercy in their lives. The way we say it in our mission statement is to enjoy the Gospel. We want to see other believers enjoying the gospel and walking in the fullness of what it means that we've been forgiven and set free in Christ. Then we talked about doctrinal unity. We saw that Paul has this absolute commitment to the integrity, to the truthfulness of the gospel. 
And some of us here this morning are really concerned in a good way about the truth. We want our doctrine, we want our understanding of the gospel to be faithful to the scriptures. We want to be like good Bereans. If you remember in Acts chapter 17, the Bereans who were commended by Paul because when he taught them the scriptures, they not only just received it, they went back to the scriptures to search the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. And so we have a concern for the truth and for doctrine. And now we see there's missional unity between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles. They are committed to partnering together to take this gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles. And there's some of us here this morning who have a real passion to see others come to faith in Christ, to hear the gospel, to share Christ with our co-workers and with our family, and even to take the gospel overseas to those who have never heard. There's a good chance, though, that none of us will be equally strong in all of these areas. But we do see how critical, how vital each of these emphases were in the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We see how vital and critical each of these emphases should be in the life of a healthy church. And I believe that every mature believer, every mature church will seek to be faithful in each of these areas. And so as we reflect upon this passage, it's good to ask ourselves the question, where are we strong? Where are we weak? Where we're strong, praise the Lord and press into that, lean into that. Where are we weak? Pray for God's grace to grow. Paul and the rest of the apostles are an excellent example for us. They were united in the gospel. There was, and this is one of the main points that Paul's seeking to make in this section. There was no rift, there was no division among the apostles. In particular, there was no rift or division between Paul and the apostles in Jerusalem. They shared the same gospel. The apostles were unified in their gospel, in their writings, and in their mission. And they were also united. And their desire to see other Christians thrive in their freedom and joy in the gospel. They were united in their desire to proclaim and preserve the truth of the gospel. And they were united in their passion to share the gospel with those who have never heard. And may the same be true for us, each of us individually, and for us as a church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the gospel. Lord, we thank you for how you have preserved it for us in your word. And Lord, as Paul and the other apostles model for us here in these verses, we pray, Lord, that we would be burdened and committed to encouraging one another in the good news of the gospel, to helping one another grow deeper in our understanding and experience of your grace and mercy and forgiveness. We pray, Father, that we would also be absolutely committed to the truth of the gospel and the integrity of the gospel, that we would be faithful students of your word. And then, Father, we do pray that you would give us a passion to share that gospel with those who have not yet experienced your mercy and grace through faith in Christ. Lord, help us to follow the example of the apostles here and to be a faithful gospel people. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.